0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Marus, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. When people discuss the importance of data and analytics in banking, much of the attention is focused on statistical models, the ability to increase back-office efficiency, the importance of areas of risk and fraud, and how data is the foundation of digital transformation. What is often missed is how data and analytics are the backdrop of an exceptional consumer experience. Product innovation, contextual engagement, proactive financial recommendations, and the future of financial services distribution all rely on data and advanced analytics. Bottom line, the life and death of financial services organizations in a post-COVID-19 world will depend on how consumer insights are collected and how they are used for the customer's benefit. We are very fortunate today to be joined by Ryan Caldwell and Brandon DeWitt, the co-founders of MX Technologies, located in an area referred to as the Silicon Slopes, right outside Provo, Utah. One of the most highly regarded and awarded information technology firms in financial services, MX works with more than 2,000 organizations that reach over 30 million users. Today, we're going to discuss the importance of data and advanced analytics as a lifeblood to financial institutions, consumers, and the future of humanity. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. First of all, I need to share that when I was developing the foundation of the Banking Transform podcast last year, you both were one of the first important interviews I wanted to do. Uh, Not just because I consider you both great friends, but because I believe your organization is an amazing example of how culture can drive results. I had the privilege to watch MX grow from a few great people to a relatively large organization without losing its personality, its mojo, or its passion for doing good. A walk through the halls of MX is always a major high for me, reflecting what both of you are and who you are as human beings. So can you take our listeners back a little bit to the beginning and share how you wanted to build your firm and and how you have kept it on track all these years?
1: Sure. Um, Brandon, you want me to start? Yeah, go right ahead. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. When you're starting a company, there's this hope and vision of what you want to accomplish long term. And then there's these kind of intermediary visions of saying, oh, man, if we could just get here, what would that be like if we could just get... But along the way, finding people who naturally already resonate with what you're building, I think is key to building the right culture and to build a big sustainable company. And we've kind of followed that as a company. And I think Brandon, myself, and a few of our other execs, I could say like a Nate Gardner, James Daughter, and a, and a few others, um, fit this paradigm where when Brandon and I first met, it was like two tuning forks getting closer together. They just start resonating, right? And it, it, it's a natural occurrence and um, both Brandon and I had sort of building our companies separately. So I had founded MX or money desktop and Brandon had founded my which essentially my and money desktop became what MX is. And when we first met the sales individual had approached Brandon DeWitt at a conference. I'll let him tell that part of the story. Maybe it was Michael Angelier. I'm not sure. And it said, Hey, you should really talk to our CEO. If you're thinking about ever selling, if you're thinking about combining efforts with another company, and that led to a trip out to Utah where Brandon came out and from the moment we started talking about what we wanted to build and this vision that we both had, it was just commonality, commonality. And that resonance, again, if you can just imagine two tuning forks getting closer together and they're just vibrating stronger and stronger. And you know, throughout that conversation, by the time it ended, we're just like, this is going to happen. One way or another, we're going to find a way to join this effort.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty incredible journey at the time. We were in Indianapolis. We were like six people or something like that. We were super small. And out in Provo, you know, was the money desktop team and at least twice as big, but also really small to your earlier point, Jim. And the truth of the legend, you know, there's always legend and there's always truth in all of these things. But fortunately, this time, the legend has the convenience of being true, um, was that I just never left Provo. In fact, I haven't been back to Indianapolis since, which makes me feel awful for all of the friends that I have there but in a decade I have not been back to Indianapolis in fact you know we sent movers and stuff back to pick up my stuff but I never went back to Indianapolis and just decided to stay in Utah and started plowing forward and you know it's been an incredible journey I mean when you Ryan and I are different people in so many aspects And the same in so many aspects. We always say, you know, if not cut from the same tree, at least from the same forest, because there's directionality, there's drive, there's, you know, all of these things that you have to have resonance on, or else you're going to have a really difficult like building experience. And I tell that to new entrepreneurs all the time. One, I always recommend having somebody to build with. Two, how do you figure out where your resonance is? Because if you can't, Work together in the toughest of situations, don't build a company together. It's gonna to be emotional, it's gonna be hard, it's gonna like wreck you one day and it's gonna have you sailing high the next day. And that has been like the journey of MX. I mean, like I I mean, Ryan and I talk about the roller coaster ride. Nearly every single week we're at some peak of down or up. And like you either have somebody that that you can join with in that journey, or don't go build a company with somebody else because it's going to be really, really, really difficult. And it's been awesome.
0: Well, it's funny because I interviewed in the previous podcast, Tom Peters, who wrote The Passion for Excellence, In Search for Excellence, uh, Thriving on Chaos, and all these other books. But I said, you you know, you've written over 18 books. Is there anything that has really resonated from the first book to, to today? And he goes, people. It's all about the people. If you don't hire the right people, it doesn't matter how much skill they have. And he goes, you know, the thing that can ruin a company is finding people that have great skills but are jerks. And, you know, it's basic stuff. But I think one thing that you see whenever you're with, whenever I'm with anybody from MX, it doesn't matter if you're at an event in Sundance or at Money 2020 or at Finovate or, or in your offices, there's not a person doesn't have a passion for what they do. Passion can't be built. Passion doesn't happen because you've got the great break room. Passion, you hire for passion, and the rest tends to take care of itself. You know, it's interesting because your mission statement and the value proposition are, to say the least, a bit ambitious. With a mission that you have to empower the world to be financially strong, and value statements such as advancing mankind, changing the arc of humanity, having an exuberance for life, and a belief in radical honesty and the desire to fail quickly. How do you measure yourself or how do you measure others against these values?
1: I think that one of the most critical parts is when we were forming the team early on, a lot of our conversations between Brandon and I, but also between, you know, the top exec and early team, right? were around what do we care about? Or around what drives us, what motivates us. And in the interviewing process, as we've added team members for quite a while, every single interview, I would be the final interview. And I'd always ask people, tell me about something in the world that you're super passionate about. And what's interesting is a lot of people would think I'd be asking something about our industry or about our company. And I wasn't. I was asking generally, is this someone where when they see a problem out in the world, they have to fix it like it just things eat at them and and, and it can't be everything because that's overwhelming, but they tend to find things that like, man, we we really should fix this. It could be something that's related to democracy or could the environment or whatever it is. Right. But if they have that passion is innately inside of them, as long as your mission is meaningful. So if your mission or your purpose as a company is true and it's not fake, then people will resonate with that if they're purpose-driven in the first place. So that's why one of our you know, our very first value of our seven values is purposeful contribution. So we found that people who believe in that tend to resonate with meaningful companies.
0: That's interesting because again, it is, you can do great things if you're passionate about where you're going. You can do a great presentation if you're passionate about what you're speaking about. You can reach a goal or at least get further in it if that passion again is there. And at the end of the day, when you can combine the path I'm gonna quote Brandon, I think here, but if you can combine passion with purpose, that even takes it to a higher level. And, and what's interesting is I read those things and saying, oh my God, you know, these are the kind of things you hear a lot of companies say. And then I said, Okay, of people that I know that know about your company, I can't think of anybody that wouldn't say. You know, you you kind of play against these all the time. And it's obvious. It's not one of those things you got to go, well, you know, a square peg, round hole kind of concept. But, you know, one of the interesting things is that one of the values that has been key to your success through the years is your belief that data rules all, that everything is somewhere founded on the ability to get numbers and get data around it. The vast assortment of your go-to-market products are based on the power of data and making insights tangible to the end consumer. How do you help firms leverage their vast amounts of data that in many cases, especially in financial institutions, and especially in the smaller organizations, are in different silos?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say just off the bat, one of the things that you find, particularly in Ryan and myself and so many others at MX, is we have a very engineering mindset. You know, Ryan has spent a lot of his career being an engineer. I've spent most of my career being an engineer. And so we, although we have these talk tracks around passion and often, often, you know, passion is used as a proxy for emotion. And so people say, well, you must not be data driven because you're passionate. But really at the center of it is we have this amazing, like engineering mindset about how do you bring together data? How do you measure things? How do you put metrics around things? And then how do you Add semantic value to things. And so instead of just saying, this is a string that's from a a transaction and it tells us that it was at Starbucks, what is Starbucks? Where did they actually, that Starbucks exists? What's the geolocation for it? What's the merchant? What's the hours? What's all these other things. And so as you join together this idea that like, we are achieving something greater than any of us could achieve individually and you join that passion with that engineering mindset, it's almost like we can't stop coming up with products. That's probably our biggest problem at MX. (laughs) Like literally every week we have a meeting about like, what do we kill? Because we expand products faster than we can communicate them internally. Like it's one of the weird things of like working with a very passionate and yet very engineering mindset group of people, like it's so strange.
1: No lack of ideas. Well, yeah, and I think the desire to solve, the desire to contribute. So everyone from engineering product over to sales, everyone is looking at it saying, wow, that's a problem, we could solve that. And so it's hard to hold that back to say, okay, we've got to stay focused on solving the problems that are the most pressing, but it's a fun problem to have because it's exciting to look at all these things, but it's definitely, uh, uh, we don't have a problem of wanting to tackle things. We have a problem of focus.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? That's interesting because as a current example, the PPP, small business yes. loan program, was a complete disaster. Yep. I'm a believer both in the political and business world that I don't care whose fault it was about something that happened yesterday, but what are you going to do to solve it tomorrow? Because pointing fingers only assigns blame, and that doesn't move the process forward. So be it the fact that the government dropped something in the laps of bankers that wasn't completely well thought out, and the fact that 95% of the banks out there were not digital, which made it very difficult to take something, put it in play, and change parts of it. If you're a paper-based organization in any way, shape, or form, this small business loan program was not really the gift it looked like. And when you have need out there, and the small businesses were in tremendous need for a solution, any delay is extraordinary. And what happened was within a matter of, I would say, days, and it was very quick, you guys came up with a solution that you, for the most part, said, hey, banks, we're offering it as free use. You know, you can use this to move your whole process forward. How that happened in a rem- and we're talking about development in a completely remote environment where there's no two engineers working side by side.
1: I've got to say, I mean, that was something, the idea was talking to customers about it, but product and engineering, and I mean, they just jumped on this problem. And I mean, I think, Brandon, you guys worked straight through the weekend, crazy hours, both product and engineering, to bring that into reality.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a call with one of our partners on uh, a Friday evening, and we had been talking internally. We'd been having meetings internally about, hey, what can we do to help the industry in general? And so we had already been having conversations about, you know, what can we open source? What can we put in the hands of individuals with the, the lowest friction threshold such that they can start to get enabled digitally and we can help them? And we had a very close partner of ours reach out on a Friday and we were on the call Friday night. And they said, hey, like, we are trying to push all of this data into the SBA's portal and none of it's working. I mean, it's taking us hours to put in one application and we can't figure this out. Like, we have to say mercy and ask for help. And so... We end up on this phone call and we called together a a group of about 10 engineers, QA, product people and said, hey, like, here's this problem. This problem looks a lot like a lot of problems we've solved before. And so let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's use existing frameworks, infrastructure, things that we already use day in and day out. And how quickly can we spin up something that's going to be able to go to market and that was at Friday at 6.30 PM, probably. And I, I called Ryan and I was like, hey, FYI, I think I found the thing we can do. We can push it out to the market. We can give it to everybody for free. We can open up the source. It's going to be royalty free. Like, let's figure out a way to do that. And, you know, started running with legal about how do we license it? How do we do all this other stuff? Right. And so that was Friday at about six o'clock and Sunday at about six o'clock. So about forty-eight hours later, we had our first loan submitted and uploaded into eTran, and this last round, like PPP number two, you know, we've done more than twenty thousand loans and are pushing right now thousands a day, you know, through the network that we've built up. You know, it really did happen that quickly. And the core thing, though, that I think of is not, oh my goodness, look at this huge problem that we solve like this. It's actually. How do you create an organization that works on the fidelity of a day so that you can say, security, we need a pen test and we need, you know, vuln scans and we need certifications by tomorrow and legal. We need new licensing by tomorrow and we need another contract by tomorrow and we need blah, 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 blah. And like that entire organizational structure built on You know, I would say the fidelity of less than a day is actually what causes you to be able to say, yes, snap the chalk line, let's go. And Sunday we're rolling. And now we have hundreds of banks that are powered by it uh, at some level. And quite frankly, when Ryan and I discussed it that first evening, we were kind of like, yeah, you know, I'll bet a bank or two is going to be interested. And it just like took off. Like it wasn't wasn't a bank or two, right?
0: So question, using this as the backdrop, we've always said that data and insights and advanced analytics is the backbone upon which everything else in banking is built. But has COVID-19 almost highlighted the fact that the survival of a financial institution, the life and death of financial institutions, is really going to be based on how well they can use data, advanced insights, and apply it in a digital way to serve a consumer? And we've, we've talked about it forever, but didn't COVID-19 pretty much highlight the fact that, guys, it's real now. You, you just had a, an almost on a drop date. You go, what what you faked before, you can no longer fake going forward.
1: Yeah, I think it's similar to a heart attack, like as a wake-up call. I think it. what happens is it brings into focus the idea that everyone knows that you should have a healthy heart. You should have low cholesterol. You should exercise. You should have a good diet. We all know that. And so it's not that any of the underlying facts have changed at all with COVID-19. The reality of where everything was heading always was that you're going to have to have a transition to not just digital, but you have to have a beautiful, incredible, powerful digital experience. And you can't, you don't have a hope of achieving that without really great underlying data. And so this has always been true. It's just like a heart attack. It brings in the focus of like, it's the wake-up call. And so the acute pain becomes immediately present and then all of a sudden you say okay i have got to make the decision am i going to change my behavior now one of the really interesting things with the whole data journey is that we've they've already seen all the the industries around banking go through this that if you're going to offer up great content via like say tv or whatever it might be well if you can't get the data of what people watch how long they watch it what they click on what they view what they read the description of but choose not to watch all that data netflix has that So data, they've created an environment where they can gather data and react to it. Amazon has created an environment where they can gather data and act on it. Google, from a search, has done the same thing. The whole idea that banking would not want people in these channels where they can digitally see exactly how they're interacting with their money, what they care about, what they're checking, and then be able to use that data with the sole purpose of better serving that consumer, if a bank doesn't do that, another bank's going to do it, or a new fintech that will eventually become a bank will do it. And they're going to take those customers' mindshare. They're going to disintermediate that customer from the banks that don't do it.
0: It's interesting because it's not just the first touch. Your banks that have implemented the PPP program, for instance, there's already discussion about the disaster that's on the back end of this, which is, oh, by the way, we have to prove that these organizations actually use the funds for what they're going to do and how do you get it so that there's no liability on the small business case that they're going to actually get that money for free. Again, it gets down to, if you don't have that in a digital format, it's almost impossible to work with. But as we're all working remote also, it's not like we can pass paperwork from one person to another, to another organization. And it's a lot easier, Brandon, your teams and everybody else's teams, to be able to to work with this dynamic of of data and insights and experience when you already have it digitized. I look now and I go, you know, the organizations that – were fake, what I call faking digital on an account opening, where they said they had digital. We did a research that said 70% of organizations said they had digital account opening. And then two questions later, we said, do you have to come to the branch? And 70% of those said yes. I go, well, I guess we differ on our definition of digital. But those 70% that require somebody to come to the branch, all of a sudden couldn't open accounts because they didn't really have a complete digital experience. And you know, one of the things that you do and a lot of the other solution providers now are doing it, is you're working with data that's not the cleanest. You you clean it up, you make it look better, you take silos that are completely different and bring them together. But overall, I think, it, as you mentioned, Brandon, is that at the end, the experience is going to be the key. And the ability, Ryan, to actually make it so that the data hits the consumer. Because a lot of the, in banking, as you, I remember going to one of your first events out in Sundance and, we talked about how people were using their great services of MX. And nine-tenths of them said, well, we're using it to define our customer. We're using it all back office. And I, th- it was right when Don had joined the company, he's looking at me. I'm looking at him going, oh, my God. And, he, you know, he's he's supposed to be the marketing guy. So he's sitting there going, nobody's using it for anything that the customer even sees. But, you know, there's no value proposition here. How do you help your financial institutions actually take data from being a back office function to being a front office value proposition?
2: I think at the beginning of that, it's finding a use case that you can do that that has low friction and high value, right? Like that's always the thing where you can insert technology is, you know, lowering the friction as much as possible and increasing the value as much as possible. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time is one of those first decisions that you make when building something is what are computers good at versus what are they not good at? And I know it seems like the simplest razor to cut with, but this is like literally a conversation that we have on a frequent basis is what are computers good at? They're great at just sifting hay all day long, all day long, they'll do it. It's like we talk about robotics. They'll just do it all day long across billions of things. They'll create associations between billions of things. And so like one of the very lowest friction things with the highest value where you include technology where it's good is just in cleansing data for the purposes of perceived fraud. Because so many people believe, and I mean, when you're in banking long enough, right? I I was at Experian previous to this endeavor that we're on. When you're in this industry long enough, you realize that the life or death of many financial institutions is how efficient they can operate a call center. Because that's where there's huge amounts of human capital. There's huge amounts of infrastructure investment. And if you can operate it well, then you are going to have better efficiency, better profitability, and you're going to be able to serve your communities better. And I would say that is definitely one of the first landing zones that we step in with technology and say, let's automate this perceived fraud problem and start pushing out clean data. So instead of saying, you know, CHV you know, CSI 1234, did you shop here? We can say Chevron in Lehigh, Utah at the corner of Maine and 14th, you bought gas. (laughs) And like just doing that, we see call center volumes go down. We put a case study out there, you know, with one of our partners, but we see this over and over again. And so you find that lowest friction, highest value place where you can enter and then you just iterate. How do you iterate? What's the next thing we're going to iterate on? You know, I would say that is the beginning of that journey that you're asking about.
0: I know both of you and the rest of your firm are not shy about your belief that data can open doors to financial inclusion, can empower humans to make better decisions, and even more lofty, can actually improve people's lives. Can you explain that a bit? How do you act against that?
1: I think that, yeah, that's core to our, our entire uh, culture, is our belief that data is the thing that is going to enable that passion, like we talked about at the very beginning. And I think that for us, that doesn't just apply in our application and banking technology. I mean, it's touched our personal lives on multiple occasions. And there's a phrase that I've come to love the last few years, which, um, you know, you go through tough times and, and your understanding of life, your paradigm in life changes, and for me, this expression of life happens for you, not to you. The whole concept that these challenges that come up for banking are opportunities to grow. These challenges that come up in our personal lives are opportunities to grow. We just have to embrace it. But the ability to grow in that opportunity is precluded if you don't have access to data. And I went through some personal challenges with my family in these last few years. And, you know, Jim, you visited my family when my daughter was in the hospital and And a lot of that whole mental paradigm of going after the data, looking at, okay, this is a tough situation, or this is a big obstacle to overcome. It seems insurmountable. How can we leverage data to get clarity? And so because that's culturally at our core, when we look at the financial industry, we look at these people who are stressed out, maxed out in their personal lives, who feel stuck in their jobs, or feel like they can't make that risky bet to go jump careers or to start their own company. And then we look at how empowering them to be financially strong changes all of that. And it literally has these ripple effects. It's really hard to truly calculate the power of a community, a country that's financially strong and all the things that that means. But when we look at that, the person can't do it without data. I mean, Brandon made a really good point about saying, as soon as you just see the truth of the transaction, you can now as a human interpret, do I care about it? And the computers are getting better and better at not just cleansing the transaction, but saying, okay, I cleansed it for you, and I've kind of identified what I would estimate to be its value to you. So our new product, Pulse, as an example, takes all of that data, and it says, all right, we've seen that when users tend to get data that's anomalistic like this, they want it surfaced that are this type of group. So maybe a baby boomer cares about it this way, but a baby boomer who's rural cares about it differently than someone who's in a city center. And so as we look at all of this data, can the machine understand the most meaningful way to surface data to that end user so that end user can just focus on living their life and and accomplishing the things that they want to separately from having to manage their money on a daily basis?
0: Well, it's interesting. I visited China in January and saw that there's organizations there That because they have so much data, because they collect it from so many different sources, including mobile devices, how a person uses their mobile phone, things of this nature, it allows them to offer financial services to everybody because... You're not using just traditional credit risk dynamics. Credit scores do not show if a person has been a, a loyal person on paying a rent or, or utilities. It doesn't talk about a person's personality, the way they, how their life transacts or, or how they make payments with a mobile device. It simply looks at what I'm going to call old data. It's amazing how within reach financial inclusion is, how within reach the ability to manage your own money is, but we, we just haven't traditionally done a really good job because we continue to use older data sources that are not as complete. Doesn't describe a person's personality at all.
1: And I think that's why my comment at a cultural level, why it's so important. And I think Brandon would strongly agree with me that if you're culturally always looking for, how do we solve problems with data? How do we take this passion of saying that's something that we, this is an outcome we want to avoid, or this is a outcome that we want to encourage. So then based off of these passions of how we want the world to be, How can we take that back to using data? If that's not at the cultural center of the organization, then you're going to be
2: blind to the opportunities to have it affect your industry. Totally, and I automatically think of you play how you practice. If you're practicing in your organization and you're making decisions off of data that you're collecting and working through that culturally, then as soon as you confront the reality of the front lines of, of our industry, then you're immediately thinking through patterns that way and creating that type of organization. And it automatically happens. And so that's one of the reasons that, you know, you see that reflected internally and then projected uh, externally is because, you know, we play how we practice. And we practice internally with that same type of rigor. And then we take it to the field every time. And that's, you know, where you, you see the experiences of people that we work with One of the things that we, I think, have always done well, but haven't really, like, marketed it a lot, you know, we've open-sourced more than 80 libraries from our infrastructure. And so, like, we've always had that mentality. With the SBA PPP portal, it got headlines. And so it's a little bit of the difference between the mentality and the reflection of the mentality that gets the headlines. But, like, we continue to think about that and say, okay, how can not only what we do be sold to the industry, but also how can what we do sustain well beyond our existence so that, because we are not only stewards of the business, we are stewards of the world around us. And that means that there are some things that matter more than driving profitability. And one of the, you know, one of the aphorisms that we manage to internally is purpose over profit. And so let's make sure that we, our thinking, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that we do every quarter when we come up with quotas, is we say, okay, here's your quota. Here's are the numbers. This is the value, the dollar value of that quota. But let's also map that over here. And what's the outcome value of that quota? How many millions of people's lives will be impacted as a result of that quota? Now, go after the millions of people's lives. Go after that. And I promise the dollar value of your quota will be met. No problem at all. And so like it's all about that balance between understanding the tangible, quantifiable things that you can measure and then the qualifiable things that are important of the outcomes of those measurements. And again, we just play how we practice. We practice that internally. We bring it to the field every time. And usually, I am not the one to use sports analogies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's interesting because you, you, um, the proof in the pudding sometimes is that, you know, I'm going to do a, a bit of a pivot here and discuss. We've talked about how data is the lifeblood, the difference between life and death at financial institutions going forward, because you can't fake it anymore. It's been brought to the forefront. And consumers now, if my mother has been ordering groceries digitally, And over the last eight weeks, haven't delivered, and the delivery service has gotten better and better knowing what she needs next. The consumers become very wise on not only how much information and how it can be used to her benefit. But also how she may want to communicate with her banker going forward. You know, we're we're using a video cast right now, and I, I try to remember if I did any kind of video on my computer before COVID in March. And now I think everything is a Zoom meeting. Everything's video included, and it's interesting. But it raises the bar overall. But when you look at what you do as a company, um, and as you mentioned, it, it's deeper than just doing purpose over profit. Your company, as you both are very intimately aware has actually saved two lives with the team that is all formed around serving financial services companies and, and building financial solutions. But Brandon, on your case, you're a, you're a stage four cancer survivor after a very frightening prognosis at, I think, age 33, a youngster.
2: Yeah, four years ago, yeah. <laughs> where,
0: where you're given only a few months to live, the team at MX rallied together to find a better option for you. Can you explain a little bit about how that whole all transpired and and what actually happened there?
2: Well, I will try to explain a little bit of it. You know, Ryan and I could probably do a 50-hour show on everything that occurred between the beginning of that and where we are today, at least. And so it was quite a shock, as you might imagine. You know, nobody expects to be 33 and told. You know, my first prognosis was, in fact, I remember I I had just walked out of Ryan's office I was expecting a call from the doctor. So the left side of my face had gone paralyzed. They thought that I had Bell's palsy and it went for too long. It went for two months that I had this Bell's palsy. And they said, hey, let's do some other scans. And so they did these scans and they said, hey, we're going to give you a call on, on Friday morning and we'll let you know the results of the scans. But there was no thinking that it was a big deal. And so I was walking at Orion's of Ryan's office and I was like, hey, man, like I'm going to you know, I don't remember what I was doing. I was leaving to go back home to visit my family or something. And I was like, I'm going to head back home and visit my family. I'll give you a call whenever I get the results. And I literally go down the elevator and I get the call from my doctor at the bottom of the elevator in the building. And he's like, hey, I'd normally call you in for this, but there's just not enough time. And so you have stage four cancer. There's 18 tumors in your lungs. There's tumors throughout your head and your neck. And you know, you probably don't have 30 days, but you certainly won't be alive in 90 days. And I was like, I think he called the wrong guy. Like, this is a sad, sad phone call, like, but it's not my phone call. It's somebody else's phone call. And, you know, he's like, no, no, no. He's like, we've checked and double checked. And, you know, despite the fact your quality of living is high and all this other stuff, like it's about to hit you like a wall because you've got these tumors everywhere. And like it is consuming your body. And it's consuming it very quickly. And so I remember I went back up the elevator, back into Ryan's office. And I remember like Ryan looking at me and going, What are you back here for? You know, like and I sat down like in a in a chair in, in his office, like we so often do to chat, and you know, just emotionally kind of lost it as you might imagine and said, Hey man, like this is unfortunately the end of the journey for me. Like I just got this call. And, you know, they're saying 30 days and maximally 90 days. And there really are no options. And it's everywhere in my body. And this is just the anomaly of the anomalies that occurs. And so I ended up flying back home anyway to see my family. Obviously, now I have to talk to my family face to face about some of the worst news I've ever had in my life. And uh, that weekend, Ryan and so many individuals from MX, I mean, product individuals, engineers, all these other individuals get together all weekend and just start. I mean, again, it comes down to what are computers good for? And if you have that mindset like that, you need to process huge amount of data in a small amount of time, how do you go about it and how do you rely on that computation? And they spent this weekend just like burning through as much data as possible, reaching out to scientists and doctors and all this other stuff. And I flew back on that Monday and they had a whole plan I mean, it's huge. It's like six feet wide, you know, this massive, like, plan all over this wall. And they're like, hey, here's the, uh, you have 26 days. Here's the 16 cancer centers you're going to visit. Here's your flights all lined up. You're back to back. Like, here's all the scientists you're going to visit with. Here's all the doctors you're going to visit with. Here's the experiments that we've processed. Here's the 99% of them that we've thrown away and said they're probably not applicable. Here's the 1% of them that we're going to, like, push on like as hard as possible. And here's like the set of plans that, you know, we're going to do a genetic analysis and we're going to boom, 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 boom. Like just everything's lined up to like the hour, right? Of like back to back. I mean, Ryan and I for the next, you know, month are on flights back to back to back to back -back just all throughout the country. Quite frankly, after this experience, I mean, it was one of the things that kind of makes a company better after the, this experience, like raising money is easy, you know. Like as an entrepreneur, you used to always talk about raising money as like you're looking for like one yes and a sea of no's, and it's like yeah, but like finding a yes and a sea of no's about capital is low stress and easy. Finding a yes and a sea of no's when you have 30 days to live and you have to fly between like cancer centers to find a scientist to say yes to you, you like. That is hard and stressful and anxiety-inducing. And, and, you know, of all the people we went and visited, um, we had three people say yes. And so of probably the 16 scientists and doctors we had talked to, we had three people say yes and say, hey, I will experiment. I don't think that you have a chance of survival regardless. And the longest prognosis that we got in that period, if we engaged with one of these people, and they, were, they were one wonderful human beings. I mean, just absolutely wonderful human beings. I'm still grateful to this day that they were willing to engage. But they all said, you won't live 12 months for sure. Even if we engage, even if it works to the degree that we think it can work to, you won't live 12 months. And so, like, it's your choice. <laughs> like, I mean, this is, and we had like tons of hard, hard conversations. But we just, you know, in that 30 days pulled the trigger and said, yeah, like, Let's go. And uh, went to Dana-Farber, got treated there for 60 days. That failed. It was really hard and difficult, like uh, cutting edge, you know, targeted therapy that failed. And it is a hard, hard experience living in Boston and, and going through that. And then went to Fred Hutch up in Seattle. And luckily, the study at Fred Hutch worked. And I'm still alive today and have had you know, most of my tumor volume go away as a result of this study that we found at Fred Hutch. But the interesting part to me, like there's so many interesting facets to this that I could talk about all day long. Like one, the first thing that like just comes top of mind to me, which is a problem we have in our industry in general around diversity, is that the only three people that said yes in the sea of people we went and talked to were the three women that we talked to. And I still can't process that, like, as an individual of, like, okay, why in this field of oncology do the three women say, yeah, I'm willing to experiment on a guy that I think may be at the end of his life, but I'm at least willing to take a shot versus every other individual that we talked to that was saying, no, not going to do it. We'll give you morphine. You can die. And, I mean… That was literally our meeting. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and you've never seen Ryan Caldwell angry until a doctor is saying, nope, we're not going to do anything. We'll give you morphine. You're going to die. <laughs> I mean, like it's, yeah. it's an emotional and horrible thing. But, um, you know, the, the second thing that, that came out of that, so that was absolutely fascinating that you have this sea of people and that these are the three individuals who are willing to take a chance, willing to experiment, willing to do something bold. But the second thing was that very first weekend that the team processed all these studies and organized them and prioritized them, the actual top one that they prioritized that weekend was the one that ended up working. And so, like, it's just mind-blowing to me that you have this team of non-medical individuals, right, like, who are just going full force into the wall trying to figure out, like, How do we separate the wheat from the chaff and determine what is the horse we're going to bet on? Because you're not going to be able to bet on a couple of horses or a few of them. You're only going to be able to bet maximally on two. And so, like, what are the ones that we're going to bet on? And how are we going to take this field of options and and shrink it down to a couple? And the number one that came out of that weekend was actually the one that ended up working. And that's just stunning to me to think of the probability of that and then also just to imagine like and think of i mean it touches me every single time i think of it is just to think of the team you know that we're able to put together and that that ryan led through that weekend to say hey and in fact the aphorism that we came up with <laughs> out of this weekend was seemingly impossible certainly improbable but necessary and so like don't get caught up in the bureaucracy of decision making we got to make decisions in 3 days that are going to impact the rest of Brandon's life, whether it is 30 days or 30 years. And we have to make that decision in three days. And there's not a committee that can weigh in. We got to just go. And I mean, I think it's obviously fundamentally changed my life in ways that it would be impossible to articulate. But it's, it's changed how we operate as a company, how we think as individuals, how we escalate things and prioritize things. I mean, it's a simply stunning endeavor. And I don't, you know, again, I'm trying to tell some of the shortened, you know, version of this.
0: One thing that's interesting, it also, I was talking to the CEO of Lemonade Insurance a couple of days ago. And he said, the thing that stands in the way of disruption and change is legacy thinking. And I think that plays a big role in not only the way your company addressed it, because it's normal to say stuff happens and we're gonna have to deal with it and we're gonna address it. I know Ryan's not that kind of person and uh, it says a lot about your friendship, but it's also about the doctors. Those people had to say, I'm gonna step out of my comfort zone and I'm gonna let go of all legacy thinking about what I believe will probably happen out of this. And even they cushioned their bets a little bit to do something different. And Brian, to have that happen in your firm once is not only life-changing and business-changing environment. It changes the whole psyche of the organization forever and the culture. But unfortunately, lightning struck twice in a different way. You had a situation with your daughter. And again, you relied on the team, the data, the analytics and the six-foot spreadsheet that I actually saw in the hospital room that looked at every possible scenario and the result of every dynamic to save your daughter's life. Can you share some of that? Because, and by the way, thank goodness we're not on video because I can't get through this ever without
1: tears. Yeah, it's hard for me to not get emotional either. You know, finishing up kind of, you know, it's a long story about what happened with Brandon. Um, It's a beautiful story, but I love Brandon like a brother. I feel incredible gratitude getting to build with people that I uh, care so much about. And when that news came, I remember Brandon's first reaction was, you, know, you told me <laughs> you weren't going to fight it. Uh, he said, "He said I got to accept this. And uh, he had you know, close people to him, whether it was family or friends who were in the medical field that said the same thing. This is a death sentence. And if you spend the last few months trying to fight it, you'll feel sick and you'll waste the last few months of your life that you have. And that was a tough time. But uh, I remember just feeling this strong impression that people like Brandon and, you know, all people are worth saving, but Brandon's, you know, he's a unique individual and and uh, the world is so much better. We need as many unique individuals as we can keep, <laughs> as we can save, you know, and it was a worthwhile effort to try to see if there was a possibility. And, you know, we're, we're realists. We, we know that sometimes things aren't possible, but, Again, going back to the data side and both of these stories with Brandon and with my daughter, with cancer, I I remember coming back to my house that night and I called both my brothers and had them come over and said, I need you clear your weekend and help to start researching with me. And we brought up big whiteboards in my house and cleared whole rooms. And and I said, look, cancer is not as much as it feels like the boogeyman emotionally we're again we're passionate people but we're not emotional people or out of control emotional people we said uh it's not the boogeyman there's science here it's it's code your body is somehow following a sequence of code So, so what's happening and we may not be able to find out but if we can we can now decide well the passion of this is someone we love and who is the world is so much better off if they are able to not just stay alive but thrive it's a worthwhile endeavor how can we use data to accomplish it so when what happened to my daughter happened to my daughter, um, where she had a routine sickness, um, you know, it was sickness. So you know, get a couple viruses and and a little, little tiny two and a half year old can get pretty sick. And we just want to be precautious. And we took her into the emergency room and, and she needed oxygen probably at that point. Cause she was having some trouble breathing. And so it was a wise thing to take her into the hospital, but we never could have fathomed that there would be the mix up that there was. And unfortunately a lethal drug was given to her accidentally, and it was not discovered for quite a while. And there's a whole story to that, but I'll I'll condense it and say what ended up happening is they gave us the options of saying, same with Brandon, they said she won't survive. And so I remember my wife and I saying she can survive, her heart can survive, we, she can recover. And for us, again, it wasn't the thing of just you know, blindly believing it. We just said, but let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the data. What happened to her? So in our unwillingness to accept that this just randomly happened and we can't explain it, we're like, well, there's science here. There's data here. Something had to cause this. And, and that cause has to sort of have a certain amount of damage, and that damage has a certain amount of recoverability. There's this whole process. It's like a flowchart of mapping out. That's the same thing we did with Brandon. I'm saying, okay, well, cancer, there's four vectors of attack to beat this cancer back. What's, what's available? What's out in the market? So he's the same approach of saying, well, who is having success with pediatric cardiac recovery after a drug overdose or after an um, uh, incorrect medication being given? And what does that look like? And who are the experts? And so, of course, the first thing is listing out where they're having success in the world. They're having huge success in Germany. Who are the experts there? And so from there, this whole thing unpacked into I took a trip out to Germany, met with the doctors there in person, talked to the people who actually invented the medical device that was on her, the life support device that she was on. And she was on life support for five and a half months, a little tiny two and a half year old. She had two surgeries where they had to open up her chest and pull apart her chest to be able to go in and operate on her heart uh two and a half, you know? And again, it's it's hard to not get emotional. And she overcame as a miracle case, but we had to put as many odds in her favor and then hope for that miracle. And that's the same thing that happened with Brandon is we just put as much, we did as much research as we could. We mapped out the best possible path using logic and data and then said, okay, this last bit is out of our hands and out of our control and we just have to hope. That you know, universe, God, and everything is on our is on our side, right? And but we didn't leave the work for someone else to do. We put in the work, right? And we definitely did that with Chloe. And one of the things that's magical about MX as a company and about its culture is the way in which we're able to serve each other as the ebb and flow occurs. And when Brandon was in his darkest day, I've seen such an optimistic, wonderful personality. You you've got you know him really well. He's just so he's such a buoyant force, right? And To see him that down and that out and to be able to have the company rally around him while we continue to thrive and grow as a company. And people ask, well, how do you do that? How do you care so much about your people? How do you care so much about your own families and and your home life while also being able to aggressively build a company? And we just fundamentally believe that the two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they amplify each other. And the fact that we leaned in around Brandon, we're stronger as a company as a result. And it was amazing. There were times where Brandon would be working on MX stuff. He's working on platform stuff. Well, we're on a plane and I'm sitting there researching how we're going to map out the protein pathways to make sure he gets the right drug for his cancer. And he's like, I don't got time for that. I got to make sure the platform stays up. And he's focused on the MX platform. And I think that that, I mean, if I could take a video or a screenshot of us on the plane doing that is the underlying essence of what MX is about is that it's service we want to serve so the world can be better and brandon is more worried about making sure the platform's up while we're on a plane to go visit a doctor to talk about his terminal cancer and i'm sitting there stressed out about protein pathways to make sure he's going to survive and when my time came which i couldn't have possibly fathomed that just two years later my little girl my wife and I, our whole world you know we've got two girls but our little tiny two and a half year old you know is in a hospital on life support, constantly at Threat of Dying Daily, and to see Brandon, who'd come up and visit me, Nate Gardner, James' daughter, all the people who said, we've got this. The company's continuing to grow aggressively. We've got this. You focus on your daughter. How can we help you with your daughter? That is this underlying strength that a lot of people could say, well, that was a moment where the company was weakened, right? It was weakened when Brandon went through cancer. It was weakened when Ryan had his daughter in the hospital. And the fact that the complete opposite is true that we became stronger than ever during those times. That's, I think, the true magic of MX.
0: Well, I think what's interesting in, in both cases, Brandon and your daughter, I've always said that uh, watch out with survivors like that because they are people that are totally willing to blow through walls continuously because they've lost all fear. They face the greatest fear. And even a two-year-old, your daughter in, in visiting her uh, about nine months ago and just saying, watch out. Good news is you saved your life. The not expected benefit is she doesn't have any fear that she can't do. And she's proven that. I mean, you know, it's interesting is what you've done with your daughter. The part that she's taken on and surprised you daily with her advancements because of not only your commitment of your wife and yours to her, but her just desire to say, I don't want to go under the impression that I can't do X. And for a youngster, to um, have that, that tenacity it says a lot. But also, as you said, the company, when you were out of the office for so long, the company grew phenomenally at the same time. And yet, at the same time, as I know, you were feeling guilty and, and trying to balance the the work-life balance. It's, it's tough.
1: Well, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't take at least a second to say, you know, give my wife just an incredible amount of just credit. I mean, she saved Chloe's life. But what's interesting is that she was actually at the dinner, and I'll let Brandon speak about that for a second, where she actually was across the table from Brandon noticing that he had nerves that were not properly reacting on his face. And it was actually that night that we went to the ER to go see what was going on with Brandon's face, which led to the discovery of that cancer. So I, I just have to give a huge amount of credit to my wonderful, brilliant wife. And I know you've got, had a chance to meet her and see her incredible medical knowledge, but
0: She's dedicated to what she does. She's, she's out to save lives, that's for sure. One last thing. We're at a time of unparalleled health crisis. I know that, Ryan, we've talked about a little bit before the health crisis even took on. But the reality is the health crisis is the tip of the iceberg. Data and analytics will, will find the vaccine, will find the cure. But the reality is the overall impact of what's going on right now is dramatic. It is impacting lives everywhere, globally. It is impacting personal economies, the future endeavors of people, both from an employment basis, but also from a financial basis. How do you think data, analytics, and firms like yours can help address the economic impact that we're all going to be faced with that is going to be far greater than any of the health challenges we've been up against? I mean, we, we've never seen a, a global 20% unemployment rate or, or a tremendous percentage of our populace having in the short term or medium term, no hope of getting out from under the burden of what has happened in in a short period of time. How can data analytics and corporations work to make life better post-virus?
1: Well, I'd love to hear Brandon's thoughts on this, but I, I can tell you that our feeling as a company generally broadly is that you cannot properly serve your customer. You cannot be an advocate for your customer. And all companies that are going to thrive are going to have to be consumer-centric, they're going to have to be advocacy-focused. You can't have that incredible money experience that you need to provide to these end users without it having the foundation of that being on data. That is the critical thing that we wish that all people in this industry would really firmly be able to get a grip on and, and be able to adopt that thesis. But Brandon, what, what would
2: you? were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this, Jim, but you know that I read a lot. And so I immediately think of, and this is actually one of the quotes that kind of, that we've been sharing internally as as we've been going throughout this entire journey for the last several years is, you know, Rudyard Kipling wrote the, the poem, If, and he says, uh, to meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And quite frankly, I think one of the things that has manifested in my life and in Ryan's life. And as we've seen at MX, these ups and downs that we all experience is that when you do experience the lows of the lows that we are experiencing right now in this pandemic, also know that that is just as false as the highest highs as we experience, but also know just as fast as the economy can sink is as fast as also it can rise. And so there's so many events over the history of mankind that you can say, my goodness, like farming, just like the family farm, just like sunk fantastically quickly. It's like, yeah, well, farm tech came about and now all of a sudden we have more efficient and we have bigger and we have wonderful inventions like Norman Borlaug and like the weather defensive wheat. Right. And like all of these inventions were predicated on the idea that first and foremost, something went out of fashion and failed and something had to be innovated and come back in the space to create a higher high than we'd ever experienced before. And the important part is understanding that when you sink into that low, low, that you can't get lost there and you can't stop there because you have to keep driving through walls in order to figure out the innovation or invention that is going to cause us to rise. And I firmly believe in that, in the near midterm, and long-term future of the current state of our economy. I have no question about that. Is that innovators, builders, entrepreneurs, you know, all these inventors out there are going to build for us a new future that we did not comprehend yesterday. And every single institution that is suffering today in this low, low is going to be a beneficiary of that next future that is being built. And there's just nothing in me that believes that it will be in any other way because that is not the evidence that we have over human history. Over human history, the creators, the builders, the innovators, they break through the walls and we rise just as fast as we sank. And quite frankly, I mean, I know I am and I know Ryan is. We are working on the preparation for the rise Because there's going to be difficulties in the rise. And we're thinking about that every single day is how do you scale? Because all of a sudden, everybody needs what these innovations are breaking through. And so, and we've seen that through things like PPP. Nobody would have thought that it would have been hard for us to distribute $500 billion. But we found out that the system can't handle $500 billion over the course of three weeks. Right. We have to do better.
0: I'll tell you, wrapping up, I I want to thank you both for being on the show. But I think more importantly... I will say that I'm counting on companies like yours to help facilitate those financial institutions that you're in contact with to make better communities. A lot of your clients are the community banks or the mid banks that are out there that are the closest to the small businesses. We have to do something to make it easier for financial institutions to help their communities grow as they have throughout time. But they're going to be under stress. And, and I think, you know, what you did with PPP and what you've done in the past, and there's a number of things is what's going to not only give banks and financial institutions hope that they can help their communities, but going give individuals hope that they can get through the toughest times. Uh, we're already seeing, as you know, a higher savings rate than we've seen basically in our lifetimes. People are already saying, how can I prepare for the next unforeseen event? Maybe the realization is never take prosperity for granted, because I know a lot of us were planning on amazing years as late as early March. Things aren't playing out the way they normally are for most companies, but I think business as usual needs to be transformed and legacy thinking needs to be shaken. And again, I I thank you both because you're really a great example, both individually and as as a corporation for what can be done if you're willing to think differently and apply data towards solutions. And and, uh, I'm gonna go back to your uh, purpose before profits. If, If people can remember that, By the way, the profits still come. Your firm is not going broke because you believe in purpose. So thank you again, gentlemen.
1: Thanks for having us, Jim. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jim.
0: Well, you know, there's not much I can add. Ryan and Brandon are two very good friends and people that I look up to as to aspire to is people as well as business people. They've done a lot of them at MX and done a lot for the banking community. But I think the one major takeaway for every financial institution, every corporation, is that you will not live, you will not succeed, you will not move forward without being able to apply data and advanced analytics for a better consumer outcome. That sounds very cliche, But think about it for a while. Think about what you're putting your attention to and say, am I applying data or just opinion? Am I moving the customer experience forward or simply trying to save money? If you put your passion and your purpose before profits, profits will come. And especially after COVID, consumers small businesses and corporations more than ever are gonna be looking for their financial partners to make them feel better about their current situation. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, rated as the top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app. In addition, Take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, digital lending, digital experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lombrake, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.